1: Welcome to The Survival Show Podcast. I'm David, the founder of Ultimate Survival Tips and your host for today's show with the ever-present producer Ben who makes everything audio and video around here behind the scenes happen. Yep, that's what I do. So this is a podcast for people who want to be better prepared to thrive in their relationships, work, and life no matter how good or how bad of a situation they find themselves in. Every week, I'll bring you a conversation with an expert in an area of practical survival, emergency preparedness, contingency medicine, or leadership, all to help you attain your fullest potential and increase your survival IQ. Along the way, we'll cut through the clutter and take you step-by-step through the mindset, skills, tactics, and gear you and your loved ones need to survive almost any emergency, crisis, or disaster. So today, Creek Stort and I are going to wrap up what's become a four-part series on long-term emergency food prep as we go through the final stage of Forever Food and get into urban homesteading and backyard farming on a very small plot of land, all based out of his new book, The Disaster Ready Home. We'll talk about the amazing world of beekeeping and why you might want to consider it no matter where you live. We'll discuss the easiest way to start a high-production garden and why you need to consider using heritage seeds. We'll also talk about how to build out an edible landscape and how to best preserve your bounty at harvest time. And then we'll talk about how your stored food may be your most valuable bartering tool in a disaster or a worst-case scenario, and a lot more. But before we get into all this great content, I'd like to encourage you to support this podcast so we can not only keep things going, but also expand with gear reviews, kit builds, Q&As, expert panel discussions, and a lot more. So here's two things you can do to help us out right now. First, go ahead and share this podcast with a couple of friends who you'd like to be better prepared because, let's face it, you don't want them knocking on your door when things go bad. And second, go over to our mothership, UltimateSurvivalTips.com and check it out. Go ahead and sign up for our free weekly survival emag, check out the MSK1 knife, our tiny survival line of everyday carry kits and gear, or just go ahead and feast on all the free content. That's it. Share the podcast and visit UltimateSurvivalTips.com and help us grow the Survival Show podcast by showing your support. It's a win-win-win for everyone. And who doesn't like to win? All right, let's get into the show. All right, Creek, I am, again... Once again excited, really excited about this one because we're going to wrap up our this whole four-part what ended up being a four-part series in small plot food production.
0: What do you think? I'm excited too, man. I can't believe we stretched this over four over four <laughs> sessions, but um it's all really good stuff. So um we've I think we've got some some a really great mix of info again today.
1: Yeah, I mean, we did not intend. I think we Originally thought we were going to get through it in one session, and I think I think what ended up coming out was was more of a deep dive. But I I believe, in responses that we're getting, it seems to be uh, very helpful for folks. So today we are going to continue where we left off, and we are going to wrap this up today. So sometimes we're going to maybe move by something really quick. Again, if you guys have questions about anything, feel free to send your questions to survival show podcast at gmail.com. And as we get into this Creek, so what we've covered in this in, uh, I guess, basically from last week on, we started into the whole concept of this, what you call uh, small footprint food production from your book. We talked about why this is for anybody, whether you're in an apartment or whether you live out in the country with hundreds of acres and mostly last week we really got into protein
0: right mm, mhm that's right yeah like the s- small scale livestock type um, operations yep
1: we're really going for the easies here we're not going to be we're not going to be talking about sheep or, or cattle or anything like that we did talk about chickens eggs meat and fertilizer you get from chickens rabbits and, and guinea pigs of all things i've been doing my right. research Right. So today we're going to really get into this whole, like we'll call it gardening, but like really small footprint, like, like postage stamp backyard gardening, if that's all you have, or you can run this out to any scale you want. Um, mm-hmm. this all, I was thinking about today's podcast earlier and I was thinking about my uncle Augie. That's right. His name was Augie. He was a great guy. And literally as I was growing up, uh, my dad was a gardener and Uncle Augie was like an amazing gar- gardener. He was uh, urban. He was, you know, basically urban. Again, small plot of land. Half of half of what was, you know, not under sidewalk or his house, he put into a garden. And I just remember year after year after year, I have this on 8 millimeter videos. If for you all that don't remember those, you're not as old as I am. And uh, and just beautiful, highly, wildly productive gardens. Beautiful, and he was amazingly fulfilled by getting out, working with his hands, seeing where his food comes from. And I'm telling you, he, these people, these like Depression era, uh, post Depression era people, they understood how to use basic long term food storage to put up everything that they could and specifically with him he did a lot of canning like they would have never run out of food ever in their lives
0: did they call him scotch eye augie
1: <laughs> <laughs> they may have but but, but i never uh, went to the mill that he worked in <laughs>
0: <laughs> we've got a we've got a scotch eye auger in the apoka box this month and whenever i heard augie that's the first oh, thing okay. i thought of was was auger and then i thought scotch eye augie that'd be a great nickname
1: All right. So let's get into this. Uh, I guess we're going to start with beekeeping.
0: I think you should go with this. Uh, you have more experience in beekeeping than I do. I'm officially a beekeeper now, by the way, okay. thanks to my buddy, Kevin. Kevin, if you're listening, thanks to Kevin. Kevin. Um, yeah, know. man. He hooked me up with some bees. And so um, it's, I'm very new to beekeeping, but I've had them now for not quite a year. So, But you uh, you've got a lot more experience. So why don't you start and I'll learn from you and maybe chip in where I can.
1: Okay. Yeah, and I'd like, love to circle back around and hear if there's any ahas or see if you can kind of confirm. Because I'm going to try and approach this very simply from the perspective of just getting started. So I, I think it'll be really helpful that you're just getting sort of kind of just getting started and uh, just jump in wherever you want. So beekeeping's mm. awesome. It's actually one of my favorite things to do. The part I don't like is actually spinning the honey, which everybody else loves to do. <laughs> so uh, I just think they're amazing creatures. And I, I got into it years ago for uh, mostly because my wife and I were starting to experience, especially her, she was starting to experience some health problems, and we kind of pinned it to sugar. And so uh, our original investment, we, it was certainly an investment for us starting because it's not the cheapest hobby to get into, um, mm-hmm. it it all came from that. So we decided to make the investment to get you know sweet stuff that was actually good for you. And maybe that's a great place to start. Honeybees actually produce a wide range of of products that are really healthy. For instance, we usually we obviously we know about honey, and most of what we know about honey is that you can You can eat it, uh, put it into whatever you want to sweeten. and But we don't really understand that it's actually a contingency medicine, too. It has uh, antibiotic and antifungal properties, and it is also a very powerful antioxidant. And if you have seasonal allergies, I'm just going to say go to your local beekeeper because you, you need to have... Uh, Local honey where the bees are actually on the flowers that you are allergic to. And you take a half of a teaspoon of of honey a day and that may help you. Also, people uh, people may not know about propolis. Propolis has antimicrobial, antifungal, and anti-inflammatory properties. And it's a great antioxidant. If you don't know what all these antis are, just go look them up. But propolis is the substance that bees use to stick things together in the hive. Um, But you can harvest that. There's bee pollen. It contains amino acids, vitamins, minerals, and some carbohydrates. Very, very good for you um, to eat. Some people, you know, they might be allergic to it if they sniff it, but most people can eat it. And then there's beeswax. It's actually, you can use it for first aid as an anti-inflammatory. It's anti- has antibacterial properties and antiviral properties, plus, you can make candles and all kinds of other cool stuff with it. You can actually uh, we make salves here, Creek, you've probably done that right? You um, mm-hmm. yep, make different salves with uh, herbs and and uh, melt some beeswax into it and all that. So there's a lot of health things that you can get from honey. We actually only originally started getting into uh, beekeeping specifically for the honey, and we came across all the other amazing benefits later. Um, Another reason maybe to keep bees is you could actually make some money at it, but I would not expect to do so the first couple of years. Um, Also, keeping bees is actually, you know, without... uh, I consider myself a a, uh, uh, Christian conservationist. Is, is what I call myself. Um honey we need we need bees for pollinating our crops, even our gardens. Uh and like here we're back to this on my list. Sugar and sweets, man. I mean honey is God's original sugar, right? I mean it's 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 the sugar that's mentioned in the Bible. And it actually yeah. in many, many ways it it's quite a, a miraculous thing Uh, just how it can be stored for long-term and and all the other properties. And here's something really, really important. You can do beekeeping almost anywhere. It doesn't matter if you're in the city or the country or in between. Mm -hmm. I would recommend Mm -hmm. that you probably have at least a postage stamp small backyard just for the distance that the bees need and just to keep people. People freak out. Some people freak out unnecessarily about honeybees, Emphasis on right. honeybees. Um, there's a lot of things that are considered bees. Lots of them sting and hurt. Honeybees do sting you, but generally, you know, they can sting you. Generally, they're bred to be very docile um, and highly productive. The biggest problem you would have, like, let's just say you you had a very, you know, small yard, but you had enough of a yard to do like a little garden and keep a hive or two of, of bees the biggest problem your neighbors are going to have is, one, maybe just freaking out when they don't understand that bees really don't care about them. They don't have any desire to sting them at all. At, but the only issue I've ever seen is if people have, like, a party and they have soda out or, like, sweet things in a glass, sometimes you'll see a bee just crawling over the edge and, like, hey, this is this is free sugar. I don't have to go and uh, take the nectar off of a flower. Um, but I, let me just say, some people are probably thinking right now, how could I do this in the city? Because they buzz around and all that from the hive. Here's how you do it. In fact, our bees are actually in our garden. It's problematic for my wife. It was problematic for my wife because they would, their trajectory coming in and out of the hive, they'll come in and out at rough, right. roughly a 30 to 45 degree angle. And right. this, depending on where they're situated, it may be too low and they may just people may walk in their pathway. So my recommendation and what, what we actually did in our garden is we actually did um, climbing beans. So I have a big climbing bee bean rack there. And then I just have um, uh, basically just some, some, side, some sort of barrier that's maybe four or five foot tall. And you put that close enough to the hive where they have to get up high enough to get over it. And you don't have any problems. Anything yet, Creek, to add to
0: that? Yeah, well, I mean mine, our bees are just right outside our house, right next on, right next to our back porch. Literally, you can sit on our back deck and watch the bees go in and out of the hive. Um they're right next to our house. They're um, you know, and we actually don't have a very big backyard at all. Uh and so this is You know, this is something that, you know, even if you're in like a cul-de-sac or a neighborhood, you could completely do this and they are very to themselves. You know, they're really only interested in, you know, getting out of their hive and away toward flowers and whatever field they're foraging from and coming right back to that hive. You know, uh, it's, it's really, really interesting as far as getting started in beekeeping. I would not, I would not do it on your own. You know, I had a beekeeping mentor, like I mentioned, and his name is Kevin. And, you know, you have to I think this is something that you just have to work with someone on. Um, And if you're interested in beekeeping, my suggestion is to Google your local beekeeping club. Trust me, there is one there. The people who are beekeepers are very passionate about that. And there is a local club in your area of beekeepers and they would be more, somebody in that club would be more than willing to help you get started and mentor you through uh, the steps in that process. um, Like Kevin did for me and like maybe someone did for you or did you just like lone wolf it?
1: No, I, I totally 100%, maybe 110% agree with you on that. Um, I became interested and, I'm not sure how I got connected with him. Um, it, I think it may have been our local, there's uh, probably about 30, 30 miles away, we have a major uh, uh, apiary. You know, they they raise bees for honey. They actually, it's uh, Draper bees. They actually provide the honey for the White House, and they have been doing so wow, for years and cool. years and years. Anyway, I think I, I think I went up there, walked around, and they said, hmm, uh, call Lee Hor. So he he was our county extension agent. It is very likely if you live in any any state that has any agriculture, you are going to have a county extension agent for uh, beekeeping. And so I contacted Lee. Lee took a high degree of interest in my interest and essentially mentored me well into my third year we probably had every, I know how to solve problems. <laughs> I have a knack for when I get into things, um, everything going wrong or going sideways. So I learned so much. It's it's just, I, I guess I didn't do good in school, but I do good in life, I guess, because I, you know, school of hard knocks and all that. Um, but I had a lot of issues that were amazing that uh, Lee was able to train me through, including he would he called me up one day, said, hey, it's raining. Get your bee stuff on. Let's go out because sometime you may have to do that. So uh, anyway, I totally agree. Um, there's If if you've seen somebody uh, keeping bees, you know of somebody that's keeping bees, chances are they would love to bring you along. And maybe mm-hmm. a recommendation. Mm-hmm. This isn't something that you learn from a book. It's not something that you just specifically right. learn from YouTube. I would not go right. about it that way. I think you would... No. Find it very difficult and run into a lot of problems um, uh but but if you know somebody that's keeping bees, they would probably love to bring you along, and you could just observe even from a distance if you're not ready to get up close uh, a lot of i I keep an extra suit here just for anybody that's curious, so they can come right up mm-hmm. and uh and do it with me or or just at least get close enough to observe. You know, nice, you know, nice, close and in color. So I agree with you there. Um, basic gear. Basic gear, you're talking, I don't want to scare people away, but you're talking a couple hundred bucks. I mean, by the time you get your mm-hmm. uh, personal protective equipment, a bee package. Um, yes, bees do actually ship in a package from wherever uh, they're they're raised, and they go through the post office. Uh, protective gear. You need a couple of tools. You need a beehive kit, a uh, smoker hive tool, some early spring stuff like a feeder, winter entrance reducer. Um, but you're, you're going to be in a couple hundred bucks when you get started unless you know somebody. But I do want to tell you that there is lots, there are lots of uh, beekeeping equipment and hives and things around. You just have to be careful. I would recommend first before you do anything find somebody that's willing to take you along maybe mentor once or twice with them see if you're actually really really interested and then they can start pointing Mm -hmm. you in the right direction in your community in your area for getting started
0: yeah and you've you've got a video too right david about kind of an introduction to beekeeping
1: yeah i'll put it in the show notes uh people can you can just click on the show notes link or go over to Ultimate Survival Tips. Click on the podcast button, and then the drop down will come down. Just click on Show Notes. Um, yeah, I'll do that. I'll actually put a really good book. The Backyard Beekeeper is a good book. You can get that on Amazon. Uh, it's it's really kind of like, well, the subtitle is Absolute Beginner's Guide to Keeping Bees in Your Yard and Garden. Um, bees are actually good for a gar- to be right in your garden, which ours is. Um, predators. There are a couple predators around here. We have bears. I don't know if you have bear where you're at. So we actually keep our entire garden in a uh, portable electric fence. That's actually kind of permanent because it's been up for like five years now, but it allows me to modify the size of our garden and, and how that goes. The chicken coop is right there too. So the chickens can be opened up one little door and they can go in the garden and, you know, add their fertilizer in there. Anyway, uh, bees are great to have right with your garden or close by. They'll find your flowers. They don't have to be in your garden, but, uh, uh, predators, uh, you've got bear, so you would need an, an electric fence there. Uh, it doesn't have to be like high tensile because they would rip right through that. But um, skunks are, are actually a natural predator. Mice can be problematic in the winter, and I have not had many problems with diseases or pests. I try to do things organically here, and uh, mm-hmm. and that's just all about keeping your equipment clean, taking care of your bees good enough, and not letting things go sideways so dude i I love beekeeping. I think bees are a miracle of God. they're social insects that essentially uh <laughs> they could not have evolved in my opinion. You need the worker there's three types of bees you, that the worker is the female. you have the drone, which is the male, and then you have the queen, which is a uh basically a a worker on steroids so uh it's a it's a social deal. You could not have had a queen without a worker. You could not have had drones without queens. You could not have any of them without queens. Uh, they had to all be created at the same time. That's my pitch right there <laughs> for creation.
0: <laughs> my kids love, like we've got a lo- two little bee suits for my kids and we do that. we We inspect the hive together and they love doing that. There's a local state park called Brown County State Park, not too far from where we are. And They actually have a cool hive that's built into their nature center where the entrance is on the outside wall and the bees come in and it's a plexiglass hive. And I literally this morning said to my wife, I was like, if we ever build a house, I'm going to build our beehive into our house. So that like, like the nature center at Brown County state park <laughs> so that we can literally be in our house and watch our bees. <laughs> Cause I find them so incredibly fascinating. I could sit there literally, and they're very therapeutic to watch. It's almost like a campfire watching my bees. Um, I get more, I haven't, I haven't harvested honey yet, but I can tell you right now that I get a lot of um, just just some really good time from my bees, just literally sitting there and watching them work in and out of the hive and fly around. It's very, very fascinating.
1: So I do have a video again, that'll be in the, in the show notes. And what I did in this particular video, although I've been shooting kind of like the whole process of beekeeping for a couple of years now, I haven't put that all together, but one day I decided to go out and just take people into the hive. And so basically it's it's about a 30-minute video where I just talk you through everything that I'm doing and why I'm doing it and and I just I talk about bees and how they work and how they find their food and everything else. So um check that video out. Um man, I, I it's a great thing to get into. It's not for everybody, and that's okay. No. Um but but if you go out and if you're fascinated with it and you go out with somebody who's got bees, you know, once or twice, and you're like, oh, I think I could do this. You're probably going to love it. It'll be a life, lifelong, um, very satisfying thing that produces, um, it, it helps our crops, it helps our gardens. It is therapeutic. I find it the same way, Creek. And uh, bees produce amazing products for us to use as humans.
0: So let's talk about what the bees, um, you know, the garden part of the bees. <laughs> the... Let's get, let's get, let's move in. Let's move into some small scale gardening. So I'm, I'm a huge fan of raised bed gardens. Um, even if you have room for a garden, I think there's a place for a raised bed garden in your operation. Um, there's raised bed gardens are really, really easy to implement. They are, they, you can kind of fit them in about any nook and cranny that gets sunlight and they are a perfect way to get started in gardening. So
1: Raised bed gardens, um, the whole concept is that you're not having to necessarily till your soil. It takes time mm. for the for the root systems and any weeds or any, you know, hardy grasses or whatever to decompose. So it almost guarantees that you're not going to have a really uh, amazing garden like the first year. If you think that, like, now you're going to start preparing for a garden that you're going to have this year, it's probably not going to be great. Um, so basically raised bed gardens, if you do it the way the Creek's going to describe, it's going to save you probably years of having to fix your soil. Do you agree with that Creek? Right.
0: Yeah, no, no, absolutely. A uh, note. it's Uh. you know, you're not, you're raising, you're creating the garden in a frame off of the ground versus tilling into the ground. And so, um, you're basically starting with primo soil where I'm going to recommend that you just buy the soil. You know, if you're just getting started, just go to a, go to a home improvement center and just buy, just buy a no weed soil. Um, it's, it's going to be the best place to start and you can supplement with your own compost and leaves and, and things like that as you go. But to get started, the easiest solution is to buy soil, um, from your local home improvement center. That's going to be the easiest solution for most people. Um, but I, I love like a four by four raised bed garden. Uh, you can, you can, I, I'm a huge fan of cedar. Uh, cedar is a little bit expensive right now, but I actually drove by a construction site last year that was building a big cedar pergola, um, at, um, a place nearby and they were throwing away a bunch of like their big cutoffs from that pergola and they were just throwing them into a pile and I stopped and I asked them and I got enough material to make a four by eight raised bed that is about 20 inches high of all cedar. It was a really nice find. And so those finds are out there if you can look for them, but you may have to buy your cedar or maybe look on Facebook marketplace or Craigslist for scrap cedar. Um, the reason I like cedar is it's, um, it lasts a long time and it's not treated. Uh, it's not treated with anything like a pressure-treated wood that's treated with stuff. So I prefer not to personally not to use that stuff for my raised bed gardens uh, simply because I'm growing my food in it.
1: Railroad ties, like the 4 by 4s or the 6 by 6s that you might buy at Lowe's or Home
0: Depot, you would not use those, right? I'm not a big fan of treated lumber for my raised bed gardens, personally. Um, and I mean, but I've I've seen... I've seen raised beds I made up from treated lumber. You know, I, I just personally don't do it. No,
1: I agree with you. Um, another wood, if you can find it, locust, is a 25-year wood on its own also. So it's highly resistant. Some mm. of these woods are just resistant. They have like a resin.
0: Uh, a resin, they just
1: have natural <coughs> insect uh, repelling ability.
0: Okay, go ahead. Uh, the alternative to uh, a wooden frame, like a cedar frame, is, um, is like a cinder block frame. Um, I've, I've at my training facility, I have two cinder block raised beds. They are two cinder blocks high. Um, and I fill the cinder blocks with soil. So I create that, build the frame out of cinder blocks, fill the interior with soil for the raised bed. And then I fill the cavities in the cinder blocks to contain, um, plants that have runners like strawberries and mint that are hard to control. And so I drop those into the cavities of the of the of the cinder blocks so they stay put, you know, so I'm not dealing with like a mint is really mint can I love mint but it really gets out of hand. And so that's kind of a cool concept for, you know, things that you want to stay put that may spread really quickly.
1: That's a great idea.
0: Yeah. And I mean, you can also bury pots in your raised bed to do the same thing. Like in my raised bed gardens at my house, I have a couple of, um, like herbs, like mint, for example, that tends to get out of hand. I actually have that in a pot that's buried in my raised bed so that it's a barrier for, for some of the the roots and the runners that mint produces. Um, I, I like kind of, um, you know, I don't really like kneeling over my raised bed. So I like a raised bed. That's a little bit higher. Um, you can build the frame so that it's actually up off the ground so that it's on like stilts, for example, that's a little bit more work than a simple raised bed. So if you're just getting started, I would say just build it, just build it so that you're, you got to kneel down to it or lean over it. It's not that big of a deal. And, um, I would, I would consider maybe, um, four foot wide, um, cedar board, I mean, four inch wide or six inch wide cedar boards to start with and double stack those. So you're at least eight, eight to 16 inches of walls on those raised beds. Um, that way it's just not like right on the ground. Um, it can be, it can be right on the ground, but given it a little bit of height, um, it not only helps keep, you know, critters away a little bit, although they're going to find their way in regardless. Um, But you're not always leaning over those raised beds, which can get annoying if you spend a lot of time working in them like I do.
1: Yep. And if you don't want to ghetto it like Creek and I do, uh, I'm seeing more and more kind of Mm -hmm. like pre-made raised bed kits coming out, you know, like where you have like the corner pieces and then it's some sort of nylon or, or, uh, you know, plastic material or sometimes metal, uh, that frames it out really easy. So you can get in, into it that way also.
0: So the easy way to make shift one is just four by four posts, um, and use those as the corner braces and then just wrap those. Uh, you just, you just wrap, you, you, you place your four by four posts. You don't have to put them in the ground, Um, You just put your, you use the, a section of the four by four post at each corner and just screw your sideboards to those four by four posts. And that creates a great framework. Um, You do want to prep the soil underneath. So you want to, you know, I like to till up. Sometimes I don't do that great of a job, but I do like to till up that soil underneath and break it up just a little bit so that it's broken up. Most of the roots and stuff that I do don't reach that far. Uh, but you do want to break up that soil so that you're just not putting it straight on the ground. How do you do your soil when you start out david do you do you break it up or did you just pop it right on top
1: yeah i mean i i i do have a i have do have a rototiller, so it it doesn't take anything for me to to do that yeah. um you know yeah. back in back in the day um I used to just get a spade you know like a flat shovel that you can get at Lowe's yeah, that's and, what I do. and just like kind of edge up underneath the grass and turn it over. I mean, if you just did that,
0: yeah. you're, you're way ahead of the game. That's what, that's what exactly what I do. Just, it's just kind of chunky. So what I did was I, so I got a tip from a friend of mine who said that when he built his raised beds, garden raised bed gardens, he went into his neighbor's property into a, a woods that his, his neighbor allowed him to go into. And he gathered up, Dead rotting logs, and he filled up the bottom half of his raised bed with big, chunky, dead rotting logs. And then he filled in all the gaps between those logs and the next half on top of that with dirt that he bought from his local home improvement center. And he said that cut his time down, I mean, drastically in filling up his beds. And so I've done the same thing ever since. And I got to tell you, It is an incredible time and money saver uh, to fill up with big, chunky, dead, rotting logs. And those dead, rotting logs will continue to rot and just produce the perfect environment inside of that raised bed as they decompose. I mean, it really, really over just a course of like a couple of years produces an incredible soil for your for your garden. And as those collapse, you can always kind of fill in um, little areas that might lower uh, with with new dirt. But that's a huge time and money saver that I've used over the years.
1: Oh, that's a great idea! I've never done that. I'm gonna have to try that next time I do a raised bed. And you're introducing like pre-existing a lot. You're you're literally introducing billions of microbes and and bacteria and all the good stuff that breaks down the soil and makes it healthy, um, by doing that too, opposed to, you know, just yeah. taking bagged soil, which is probably not sterile, but it's probably not as bioactive as, as a dead log from the woods is going to be.
0: That's right, man. I mean, cause you know, that, that's sterile, that soil that you buy, it's good soil, but it doesn't really, I mean, it has nothing on like a natural decomposing soil and leaf litter and forest material. And those dead logs really, really add to um, the process. So one question people might be asking themselves is, okay, so I build a raised bed. What do I, what in the world do I plant in a raised bed? Well, I'm a huge fan. Oh, I got to say this. Cause this is my punchline.
1: go. <laughs> <I'll> go <huh? laughs> so as Creek might say, plant what you eat and eat what you plant. That's that's all I got for you.
0: (laughs) That's a great place to start. You know, think about what vegetables you eat. I would say something like that, you know, but I would also say that I'm a huge fan of trellis, um, of trellis plants, plants that do well on trellises. Four raised beds it is a really great way to maximize production in even a small four foot by four foot raised bed. if you can't go wide, then you go high and There are some really great plants that i'll recommend right now that work very well on trellises uh, pole beans are one you want to make sure to always for anything I'm mentioning here you want to make sure to get vining varieties if they aren't vining naturally like pole beans are vining naturally. So pole beans are great. Peas are great. Um, Cucumbers are a make sure to choose a vining cucumber because they do make bush varieties. So cucumbers are fantastic for raised beds. Summer squash is fantastic for raised beds. It's a vining vegetable. Um, There are vining tomatoes uh, that you can get for raised beds that go up instead of out. Melons are a really, really good option Um, And those are, those are, I plant all of those in my raised beds on trellises. Um, And those are, I think those are, those are all vegetables that a lot of people really like and enjoy anyway. You'd probably be planting those regardless, but make sure to get the trellis, the vining variety.
1: Yeah, that's great. If you want to start a little bit early, of course, there's a lot of other things you can plant, various types of, of lettuces, salad green type stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. Man. I mean, as far as, like, proven winners, tomatoes, you got it right, beans, squash, zucchini, cucumbers. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. tomatoes are probably the most iffy, depending on where you're at, you know, with heat and moisture and all that. But they're, you know, everybody wants tomatoes. Um, but, man, you about can't cu- kill cucumbers or squash or zucchini. So, and there's tons right. of different varieties. I mean, the volume that you get out of out of one seed in zucchini or squash far, far exceeds anything else I've seen. Yeah.
0: Yeah, man. I'm a huge fan of all those. And I love going up, you know, I mean, and trellises are really cheap. Yeah. You can buy trellises. They're very cheap or you can make your own. You can lash together your own trellises and if they, you know, you got to baby them a little bit to climb it, but you know, they um, it's a really fantastic way. I mean, if you can't go out, go up. Uh, That's my philosophy.
1: That's excellent, Creek. Let me just circle back on a couple of things. Is that okay? Did you did you have anything else yeah, you totally. wanted to co- cover in no. that little section? Um, no, go for it. So some of you, some of you may have already started gardening. Maybe maybe you have. You know, a couple recommendations for raised bed gardening and gardening in general. Uh, one with raised bed gardening, um, if you're just getting into it, start small. I I like the four by four. And you were talking about like a four by four foot bed, right? That's right. Yeah, uh, start start small. It's surprising, like Creek said, if you go up, how much you can fit in that amount of space if you plan properly. Mm-hmm. Uh, another thing, once you get an established raised bed garden, or you just have a standard garden, maybe you, you know, maybe you bought a place where there was an existing garden, or you've been gardening, and you want a couple of weird tips from David couple of things that I've learned uh try to keep your ground covered you need to keep it covered to keep the moisture in especially if you're in a drier drier climate and especially all of us get hit with uh dry summers and that that's also going to prevent erosion uh weeds weeds I do not recommend landscape fabric I don't even recommend landscape fabric and landscape. And I'm going to tell you that my degree is in landscape architecture and I studied a lot of horticulture in college. And I still hate that stuff. And I hate it even more. Um, what, I, what we do use here, and this works famously, is um, depending on the size of your bed, you can, you can get like one and a half foot, I think up to four foot wide. Craft paper from Lowe's. What we do is is we will will plant things in the garden, and then we'll either cut slots or you know cut out a center thing if the plant's small enough. We can just kind of pull it through the hole, or we'll just we'll just cut up the side, and you know put it around the plant. And then what we do is we'll cover it with wood chips or mulch or compost, and that is amazing. It just helps to continue to create. Uh, soil and increase the nutritional the nutrition of your of your soil. Um I do not recommend spraying roundup around I, I, I just can't. I can't recommend that for for literally anything now. Right. Um if you if you need if you feel like you need to kill some weeds, maybe of a fence or something. Uh what we've been using rather successfully Creek is concentrated vinegar.
0: Mm-hmm. I was about to say the same thing. There's a there are several different recipes involving vinegar that are very effective.
1: You can put like uh you know, I'm not super good with Dawn, but it's certain Dawn dish soap. You put some Dawn dish soap in with your vinegar and it's that that soapy allows it to adhere to the weed uh more. And uh anyway, that can make a really a really really good uh, herbicide um, another thing to keep bugs out I don't do any, I don't do any insecticides I, I don't know if you've done this Creek. we plant marigolds on the ends of rows and then every 10 to 15 feet down a row and they get pretty big by the time you get to the mid part of the summer and we don't have bug problems dude another day is here and you're ready for it what to
0: wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check Um, it's something my grandma did. Uh, I don't know how effective it is, um, really, but it's, it seems to work. It might be folklore, but you know, when growing up, we always put hedge for, it's the, the fruit of the Osage orange tree is what we, is what a hedge apple is kind of looks like a big green brain. And, um, so we always put those in our closets growing up to keep bugs away. And we also line the perimeter of our, of our raised beds with them. Nice, nice. Um,
1: yeah, marigolds and chrysanthemums. It's one or the other or both. I think they're from a similar family. Uh, they act, they actually chemically extract um, agents from those, and that's they come up with a form of um, repellent, which is called permethrin. I'm sure you've used that before.
0: Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Very effective. <laughs> Um,
1: so, and one thing for people that maybe have a larger size garden, or maybe they don't, don't, there's some volunteers that are really intriguing. One that we have quite a bit of here is lamb's quarter. Some people call it wild, Mm -hmm. wild spinach. And dude, we Mm -hmm. get the most amazing volunteer crop. Meaning like, if you didn't know what it was, you would think it's a weed of purslane here. And purslane is amazing in salads.
0: Same here. That's uh that's on my edible landscaping list actually. But, um, I don't, they're purslane and lambs quarter. Those are top two weeds that grow in, in and around my landscaping beds for sure. And we eat both of those.
1: Yeah. Um, anything else that you have, that's a volunteer that you kind of nurture along?
0: trying to think if anything sticks out in my head. I mean, those two definitely no, not that I can think of. Let's talk briefly then
1: about composting. How's that sound? Um, did yeah. you want to share anything there before I I dig uh, in go for, for it. like a you minute? Go. All right. Yeah, go for it. Okay, so composting. I mean, basically composting is upcycling your food scraps, grass cuttings, uh leaves, cardboard, paper. You can you can uh my my wife has a, uh, we've got a couple of, I guess, compost bins upstairs, and one just goes in the trash bag separated because it's all the stinky stuff you don't, that doesn't make dirt. And then she, on the other one, uh, it says, anything that makes dirt goes here. <laughs> and one of the grandkids was saying, what makes dirt? <laughs> you know? Because if you don't know, you don't know. Um, so, composting if you want to compost here's the fast way to do it one you need to have enough mass in there so that uh, biology starts to happen and so what I've I've tried it various different ways including just piles of stuff on the ground and creek I found these I'll probably have to dig on to my phone and, and tell you what the exact name is but I found these nylon uh uh Basically, it's a roll that's about four and a half, four, five feet tall, and it has these little pins that you, you put it around, and it's probably, I'm going to say it's probably a, a four-foot diameter. You can make it as thin or as wide as you want up to its maximum, and then you, you put these like pins in the side, and so it's like this standing-up, roundish area, and mm-hmm. it's got slots in mm-hmm. it. And so that's what I've been using, and it's amazing. It's, it's like the absolute best way to compost. And so here's how you want to do it. Stuff's not going to happen. Basically what you need to happen is the biology needs to be happening in there, and all the microbes, they start to break down a carbon and nitrogen, essentially, if we're just going to talk just the basics, carbon and nitrogen. And they're going to take anything... Um, food scraps, grass cuttings, whatever, and they're going to break that down into beautiful, luscious soil for your raised beds or your garden or for topping off uh, anything that you put over the top of the garden to keep weeds out. So uh, the mix that's going to degrade the fastest, I call it fast compost, you do three, three times the volume of carbon as nitrogen Some people say like five or six or 10 or 30 times the carbon and nitrogen. But if you want a hot, fast mix that's going to break down in, you know, 30 to 60 days, do that. Do three times the carbon and nitrogen. Um, Carbon, it's basically fall leaves, you know, the brown leaves that you got to rake up and people take them to the, you know, for the dump guys to pick up. You want to find where those leaves are going And you want to go and say, "Hey, do you mind if I like fill up the back of my truck with these? They make fast compost." Uh, So fallen leaves, corrugated cardboard—that's you know the brown stuff. Uh, It's best to like just kind of slice that up a little bit. Paper, wood chips, shavings, and straw are like good volume. You need a large volume of carbon. As far as nitrogen goes, grass clippings—you want to get it. I mean, if you pile up a ton of grass clippings and you go back there that night, you're going to actually start seeing steam come out of those, right? If it gets cooler at night in the summertime, mm-hmm. and so grass clippings are great. Coffee grounds are high in nitrogen. Chicken man- manure, basically any any manure that you can get. Um, uh, fruit, vegetable, and plant waste. You don't want to be putting. I don't, we don't put very much like protein, like like meat scraps yeah. and no fats in there. So that's that's the way to do it. And I actually have, if you want to get serious about composting, there's people that, like, I've learned almost everything I know from other people. Well, I have l- learned everything I know from other people. But I also have, they make, um, compo- I'll put this in the show notes. They make compost thermometers. So this this thermometer has a, has a probe on it that I'm going to say it's, probably 18 inches and it's specifically made for compost so it has a cold warm and a hot hot zone on it so you basically you want the center of your compost pile to be um around I'm, I'm gonna this might be not totally accurate but 115 to like 160 degrees and the warmer it is um, in most cases, the better unless it gets too hot and spontaneously combusts. But that usually doesn't happen. <laughs> so there you go. That's that's my composting spiel.
0: By far, the bulk of my compost comes from dead leaves in the fall. We have a little like wooden corral that we dump all of our leaves into and just press all, as many leaves as we can possibly get into this little wooden corral it kind of looks like a u-shaped wooden fence basically and um almost all of our compost comes from just decomposing leaves it it is the best compost we have plenty to fill pots and whenever we fill like planters and stuff it all comes from the compost that kind of co- we call it the compost corral but um it um it it all, it's all it's all decomposing leaves and it's super simple to do and everybody you know if you have any kind of a yard you have leaves Uh, The only leaves that you definitely, that you do not want to put in um, your compost piles are from, uh, are from the family of like a lot of nut trees, like um, walnuts are, they contain like walnuts, um, hickory nuts, um, and a variety of related nut trees have a chemical called juglone that is actually, um, an herbicide and that can, that can really throw off your (laughs) throw off the growth of your plants. If you're real heavy on leaves from one of those varieties of nut trees. So other, other than watching those, you can pretty much throw any leaf, any leaf in there.
1: That's amazing. I didn't know that. And I agree with you on the, like, and you're all about the simple, easy, we just have so many garden and food scraps and everything else since since we grow a lot here um, that I was trying to convert everything. And just with our business, we get a crazy amount of brown boxes. Um, yeah, I was yeah. interested in this whole fast compost method. But I will, I will attest to the fact that some of the best soil I've ever seen in my life was when I was living outside of Philly and the man who owned the house had a garden, and all that was in that garden to make the most beautiful soil was the leaves that he and his neighbors collected every year. And after, it does take some time. I mean, it takes a, you know, takes a year or so for it to be breaking down, but that was amazing soil and it's super simple.
0: Yeah. Cool. Edible landscaping, you go. Yeah. So I'm a huge fan of edible landscaping. I have a rule these days. I don't plant anything around my house unless it is edible. Um, In one way, shape or form, I try to, you know, I try to be as productive as possible with the things that I plant. And we have, you know, if you walked around our landscaping right now, you would probably think, wow, that's, you know, it's not the most manicured landscaping in the world. It's not really my style, but, Everything in it is edible in one way, shape or form, but you would never really know it. Like, uh, you know, the Amazon delivery guy, he has no idea that everything he's walking by, he could probably eat in one way, in one way or another. And so I would challenge anyone listening to you know, really think about before they plant, before you plant something, um, in your landscaping or around your house or in your yard, you know, consider the idea of it being edible, of it being useful, um, as well as pretty because there are pretty and useful, um, edible landscaping, um, edible landscaping plants and trees. And so I'll just list a few of my favorites, um, that I have planted intentionally. So I definitely plant a lot of fruit trees, um, I planted probably twenty-three fruit trees last year in less than an acre of space. And I'm a big fan of dwarf variety fruit trees. And I buy all almost all of my fruit trees from fastgrowingtrees.com. I don't have any vested interest in that company, but I do they do sell like trees that are four and five years old. You're gonna pay for that. You're gonna pay a premium for that, but you're gonna get fruit literally the first or second year versus waiting four or five or six years from a little tiny like twelve inch seedling fruit tree that takes forever to produce. Um, but I'm a huge fan of fast growing trees. I've always got really great trees from them. Um, I've I've planted like last year. I planted eight columnar apples, which is just a kind of a dwarf apple that. They grow in just a column without branches, just along one side of my house. Um, So I'm a huge fan of fruit trees of any variety. Um, Berry bushes. I love berries, um, whether it's gooseberries or raspberries or uh, blackberries or goji berries. Um, I have all of those berries planted in and around my house for landscaping. Service berry is a really, really um, great landscaping tree because it's beautiful. It's like a it's like a it's kind of like a tree, but it's really more of a bush. Um and it gets to be a very big bush. Uh but it's one of the first berries to produce. It's also called Juneberry, which is it's one of the first berries to come out in the spring. And it is an absolutely beautiful spring flowering tree. Uh but it does need full sun. We plant a lot of, we have, we let the purslane grow like crazy, almost like a carpet in some of our shit, more shaded areas. So, purslane's a succulent. Um, it's a wild edible plant and it's great in salads and smoothies. We like pine trees uh, simply because um, there's different parts that are edible. We, I love pine. I think pine's a magical tree anyway. Uh, but the pine pollen is edible. Um, we mix pine pollen in with our oatmeal. Uh, that we gather from our pine trees. Uh, It's not like we eat the needles a lot, but the needles are edible. You can make tea from it. So um, we like pine for that reason. Um, If you're in a shaded area like where you might have like hostas, you ostrich ferns would be a really good option so up in the northeast you guys listening from the northeast you're nodding your head you're like oh man we go ostrich we, we eat ostrich ferns so the fiddleheads that are often talked, the fern fiddleheads that's from the ostrich fern and um they're an amazing shaded area um and they're absolutely beautiful these ferns are, can grow like four or five feet tall the fronds of these ferns they are so pretty and in the spring, each plant will produce, you know, a dozen or so edible fiddleheads that are very much like asparagus, green bean. So that's a really nice one. Um, I love root vegetables. Um, Solomon seal is one. Uh, I don't dig up the Solomon seal. That's more of like kind of a, you know, sol- we plant giant Solomon seal. And it's a really pretty kind of arcing um, landscaping plant but I always know that there's a big, there's a big root under there that I could eat if I absolutely had to. So it's kind of a backup. A lot of the roots, if you eat the roots, you're going to kill the plant, but I like knowing that it's there. You know, I, you know, I'm, I'm the only one that knows that, you know? And so I kind of like that. Roses are, are something else too, you know, roses, you can, you know, make, make rose sugar and, you know, tea from roses and they make decor. they're decorative for salads and Um, you know, other dishes. So just, I mean, I won't go on and on about it, but there are are literally hundreds of edible landscaping plants. A Google search on the subject will, will reveal more than what I'm talking about, but it's something to really think about as you're planting around your house.
1: I love that whole concept. We, we have kind of morphed into that here also, Um, you know, with herbs too. I mean, we, a volunteer we have around here is Echinacea. And for a while it just I couldn't get rid of it and so I just left it. And now we've got a couple of varieties of it just growing in one of our landscape beds and it's got amazing medicinal benefits to it. And elderberry. Yep, yeah, we've got elderberry.
0: Elderberry's a great one. That's a that's a really beautiful bush. Wild bergamot, you know, wild bergamot's a really beautiful flowering herb that you know is not only medicinal but makes a fantastic tea i mean there are so many like i would strategically think about like what can i replace in my existing landscaping with something edible you know it doesn't have to be done all in one season it can be done one plant a year if you're on a budget and over the course of a few years you will slowly kind of you know transform your landscaping into something that's you know beautiful but also useful if you ever had to tap into it and i like thinking of my landscaping that way i kind of geek out of it like that
1: just one thing i want to touch on really quick is edible flowers so people may not know this but rose flowers are edible my favorite mm-hmm. let me ask you this what's your f- your favorite
0: edible flower I would probably say, I would probably say rose is, is one of my favorite edible flowers, uh, to be really honest with you. Um, and, and I love, so I've planted a a variety of rose called the wrinkled rose or Rosa rugosa. You'll find it in the Northeast in particular. That's the type of rose that I plant in my landscaping simply because it produces huge rose hips. I mean, these things are the size of a quarter, like some of them get as big, almost as big as a golf ball. And, um, they, you really realize when you see rose hips that big, you really see the connection between Rose and apples. They're a member of the same family. And when you see a rose hip that big, it looks like an apple and they are absolutely delicious little fruits of the rose tree. But I would say Rose is one of my favorite edible flowers.
1: Uh, yeah. And apple flowers are edible. Uh, Mm-hmm. Apple and rose are probably my second favorite. You know, I eat a lot of dandelion.
0: I really do. Dandelion. I mean, seriously, don't spray your yard, you know, make the, unless you're in a homeowner's association that requires you that you do so, you know, that's a part of, you know, edible landscaping. Red buds are one of my favorite edible flowers. The red bud tree is probably the most popular um, ornamental flowering tree in North America, um, and hardly anyone knows that those red buds are absolutely edible. You can make, you can make, my favorite way is to mix them in butter and make a red bud butter. Um, and the but red bud flowers are one of the first flowers to pop out in the spring. And man, there are like millions even on a small tree. So you're never going to hurt it. You can never harvest all the red bud flowers.
1: Yep. My favorite edible flower is daylily.
0: All day lily. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Day <laughs> you lilies forgot about that one. <laughs> I know. I mean, and day lilies have edible tubers as well. You know, day lilies have edible tubers, but you're going to kill the plant, but they're there just in case you needed a survival meal. You've got a massive tubers year round, uh, smaller when they're blooming, but day lilies a fantastic one. I prefer the orange day lily, which is kind of the OG when it comes to day lilies, you know? And so, um, but they're a beautiful ornamental plant. And the leaves of daylilies make incredible cordage when they're when they die and shrivel up. It is one of the best cordage fibers that you could possibly use. Oh, I've never tried that. I'll have to do it this year. It is, they are unbelievable. They are incredibly fibrous and durable. So what do you just real quick, what do you think daylilies taste like? You know, it depends on the stage. You know, when they're in the bud stage. Uh, when they're kind of closed up in the bud stage, I think they taste like green beans, almost exactly like green beans. Um, You know, but when they're, but we also use them like in the wilted stage. Um, I mean, you can, we batter fry them in the full bloom stage. And to me, they taste like mushrooms at that stage. Um, And then at the wilted stage, they lose some of their flavor, but even wilted they make great additions to soups and stews like we add them to like a sweet like a like a hot and sour uh, soup and they make an awesome addition like a a voluminous addition to soups and stews they just like add um volume without a ton of flavor they kind of take on the flavor of whatever the soup or the stew is that's how about you that's really good
1: um Depending on when you get them, if you get them at at the height of the flowering, I think they taste like uh, really sweet, like cucumber.
0: Okay, okay, maybe I can that, see that. <laughs> maybe that's just me.
1: But but they're no, they're, I can see that. They're just wonderful. Yep. So that's a good one, Creek. Let's go ahead and jump into. Uh, we were going to talk about preserving. A little bit. But before we do that, why don't we jump into wild foraging? And this will let me just go through one or two things here really, really quick. Um, just like Creek said, don't spray your your lawn. Just be careful. Like you don't want to be going, you know, in a city park and see a daylily and eat eat anything there because it's very likely that everything's been sprayed there. So yeah. as we get into foraging, Creek, and you feel free to jump in here too. I'm just going to go over a couple of rules. Um, But before we do that, do you want to just explain what foraging is?
0: So foraging is looking for wild edible plants, Um, walking around. So when we talk about foraging, we're talking specifically about plants versus like hunting, which is would be animals. And so we're talking about walking around in the wild green spaces um, and the places that aren't treated or sprayed, and looking for wild edible plants. That's what we that's what we talk about.
1: Cool. So just a couple of rules here with foraging: never eat anything unless you're hundred percent certain what it is, and that you know that you definitely know that it's edible. Again, never eat anything chemically treated. So if you're if you don't know, like if it's not your yard, don't eat it. Right. Um and get trained. I think, I think that's, that's the biggest, the biggest one. All right. So I'm going to let you take foraging
0: from here. So I'm a huge fan of foraging. Um, I for, we, we eat foraged foods every, sometimes, you know, during the spring, summer, and fall, almost daily, um, less in the winter. Uh, but we still eat some dried, some dehydrated and dried things that we, that we've, harvested and preserved for the winter, but in spring, summer, and fall, that's your real foraging season. And we eat foraged foods almost every single day. We, we take a family hike almost every day. And on that hike, we always make it it very, a a very, it's very intentional that we come back with something to eat. Um, It could be something really small or it could be like a trail nibble while we're hiking. Uh, But we always have a, a, we're always very intentional that a purpose of that hike is to bring back something to eat, whether it's just a part of a salad or whether it's a side vegetable that's going with dinner that night, the easiest things to forage are just salad greens, you know, something that you're just going to toss into a salad or include into um, some type of salad type meal. So I I, I want to give, I want to give some like really interesting. So I like the idea of like hidden survival gardens. Um, and so I have in several places around my home, little hidden survival gardens so that are wild edible. So they're very durable and native. And so they'll come back year after year, but no one is going to recognize them except me. I just kind of know they're there because I've put them there intentionally. And so A couple three plants in particular that come to mind with a hidden survival garden is um, two. I want to give you these two because you can go right now to your local farmer's market or even a Whole Foods and you can buy these two and plant them. And one is Jerusalem artichoke. You can buy Jerusalem artichoke tubers from Whole Foods. You can plant them in the spring. And one tuber, it's like a potato. The eyes of the Jerusalem artichoke will produce those Jerusalem artichoke plants, which will then produce more tubers. One Jerusalem artichoke tuber in the matter of a couple of years will produce literally, I mean, dozens, if not a hundred plus really, really sizable tubers. They are a very, very hearty, um, wild edible. Okay. Especially if you're in the Eastern woodlands, like if you're in the desert or something, you're gonna have to water it, but it'll probably still grow as long as you're watering it. But I like Jerusalem artichoke because it's such a substantial food and it's the most expensive tuber in whole foods. And, like, if you go to a fancy restaurant and they're serving Jerusalem artichoke, it's on the fancy menu and it's very expensive. And the same thing is with parsnip. If you go to like Whole Foods and you plant a, and you take a parsnip and you buy a parsnip from the root section and you put it into the ground, it's going to grow a parsnip. It's going to grow a a wild parsnip plant and that wild parsnip plant is going to produce seeds. Those seeds are going to fall to the ground and then you're going to have a bunch of parsnips because those things are super, super hardy. And so then all of a sudden you're going to have this renewing crop of parsnips, whether it's in the corner of your yard or the corner of your field. And it's just a really great way to establish, um, a survival garden and milkweed would be my number three, you know, milkweed, um, has edible pods and edible flowers. They have delicious edible parts and the shoots of milkweed are edible. A lot of people don't know that about milkweed and one milkweed plant will produce literally thousands of milkweed seeds and you could build up a whole crop of milkweed if you had like a little field or a little meadow near your house like it'd be a great spot to put in some milkweed and just have a hidden renewable survival garden those are three that are top of mind to me that I want to mention because they're all three really accessible and really really hardy
1: and the cool thing is you don't have to have any space in your own place to do that and, mm-hmm. you know, you're adding to the native wildlife and uh, I, that's a really good idea. And I actually didn't know that there were so many edible parts of milkweed because we just have it growing in the fields here.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So milkweed's a really interesting wild edible. It's a beautiful plant. Um, and, you know, I like the other two because they produ- you know, so many wild edible plants just produce like little salady type stuff, you know, and that's good, but it's not substantial. You know, you're not going to like live off of it. Uh, but i love jerusalem artichoke and parsnip because they produce such substantial tubers um like if if you build a, like a like i have one raised bed that's dedicated only to jerusalem artichokes because they can get out of hand if you don't watch out and so i have one raised bed that contains jerusalem artichokes and it and like that bed produces literally hundreds of jerusalem artichokes every year i could never eat them all that's a really good creek so I just want to
1: back up one second and we're going to we're going to maybe take five to seven minutes and wrap this all up in a big bow. Yeah. Um, One thing I want to mention that we missed when we started getting into the small plot gardening section is we did not talk about heritage seeds and why people may want to consider getting heritage seeds versus like the typical burpee hybrid seeds that they might find in their garden center. Do you want to handle that one?
0: Oh, you go for it. I'm. I've got something else I want to say next.
1: Okay, yeah. So heritage seeds are essentially, in probably all cases, are heritage heirloom seeds. They've been around for a long time. They've been proven hardy, and they they are not hybridized or GMO uh, genetically modified. So. Uh, what often often happens with your hybridized or GMO seeds is they do not produce viable seeds themselves. Even though they have the appearance of seeds, they you can't specifically dry them yourself and then grow plants the next year. So that's something to consider because we are talking about forever food here. And if your goal is to be able to build a cache of seeds from what you're growing, then you want to consider getting heirloom seeds and the company that I would recommend looking at just because they're like number one massive and they're awesome people is Baker Creek heirloom seeds. Just look them up online. And again, I'll put, I'll put a link in the show notes. There you go. Heritage
0: seeds. That's awesome. So if you're thinking about, um, you know, where to start with, uh, walking around looking for or f- maybe doing some foraging, I want to I want to just share an interesting resource. I don't know if it'll yield anything for those listening, but I think the concept is really interesting. It's a website called fallingfruit.org. And it's basically a community website where people can add on a map locations of places to forage, like proven places where there might be pawpaw trees or wild apple trees in a park or something like that. And so people post these things and you can go to this map and type in your zip code at fallingfruit.org and you can, it'll pull up like any place that somebody has put on the map where there might be an opportunity to forage something wild. Like I'm just looking at the map of the United States right now. And like up in the Northeast, it says 134,000 locations in the Midwest, it's 31,000 In out West it's 171,000 In Northwest it's 112,000 different sites that people have identified and posted for opportunities to go foraging. So you might find something really interesting near your house. I found a really cool pawpaw patch on this map. That's right down the road from me that I did not know about. Um, I'm not personally a fan of sharing my foraging spots, but for the, I don't post mine on there. So you're not going to find mine on there, but some people post theirs on there and you may, you know, you may be able to find some new ones that you didn't know about. So just an interesting resource just for fun.
1: That is for fun. And if you do anything like that, or you're, you're, you do come across a really nice patch of, of whatever Jerusalem artichoke or whatever. Um, I would just highly recommend that you be responsible. Uh, there's there's mm. certain things that grow in the wild that are valuable um, and if you, if you go and just dig it all up or pick it all or tear it all down, um, it's just not going to be there uh, next year or you know years to follow. So just be really responsible
0: when you're out foraging in the woods too. Yeah. Sometimes I forget to issue those disclaimers because it just, you know, these, those things are kind of without saying, you know, like you've got to have permission to be on the land, you know, don't take all the stuff, don't ruin it. You know, I mean, so all of those things that we shouldn't have to say apply, um, to wild foraging, you know, make sure you know what it is before you eat it. Go with an experienced wild forager, you know, don't eat anything you've never eaten before, um, I mean, there's about a laundry list of 50 things that I disclaimers that I should issue about wild foraging. But you want to make sure to have permission. You know where you're headed. Just it's a lot of common sense, you know. And but wild foraging is a really great hobby. We talked about the orange daylily. If if you want a free little wild foraging course that involves the orange daylily, I have a free one at wildedibleplantofthemonth.com. You can enter in your email and take a wild foraging course that features the wild daylily the cattail and the poisonous iris which all look very similar and i teach the differences between the three of those so since we talked about wild orange daylily it's an interesting if 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 you're not familiar with it and you want a free little course you can go there and check it out
1: that's awesome creek so two things left on our list is just preserving your produce now so taking it from, okay, I've got this great garden and it's producing, it's wonderful. How do I preserve that? And then I just wanted to talk briefly after that about uh, potentially storing up to barter. And let's just say that you're you're not going to do a garden yourself. There's a couple of options probably in your area for you to participate in gardening without having to do it all on your own. Would you like to handle just, you know, We've talked about a lot of these preserving methods before, but would you like to mm-hmm. just kind of fly over these real quick?
0: Sure. Yeah. Uh, so you're the freeze-dry king, so I'm sure you freeze-dry a lot of your produce. I don't, I don't, I don't have a freeze-dryer, so I freeze a lot of my produce. Uh, I don't personally do a lot of canning. It's just not my M.O., I, uh, my mom and my grandma did, uh, but I just can't not get into canning. I just, I've tried, I just can't, my wife is not a canner and I just am not going to do it. So I don't spend a lot of time canning. That is certainly the go-to option for preserving produce. Um, I grew up with my parents have, they call, we called it the cold room. It was a little corner room in our basement where it was cold storage for apples and potatoes and pumpkins and squash and all of like the, the root vegetables and the sweet potatoes. So, I mean, I always thought it was really fascinating that if you have a cold, like corner of your basement, kind of like a root cellar, that's where the whole concept comes from. You can put certain fruits and vegetables, um, in that area and they will last for months. I mean, my mom's still eating potatoes right now that she pulled out of the ground last summer that she's getting down from the cold room. And I always thought that was really fascinating that those roots and like squash and pumpkins and apples will all last on their own without any preservatives whatsoever. If kept in, um, a cold, a cold area like a root cellar or a cold corner of a basement.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, Karen does it all. The only thing we don't do is smoke our own meat, um, but she mm-hmm. air dries herbs. She's got a special rack for that. Uh, of yeah. course, the freeze drying, which we talked about a lot in, I think, uh, number one and number two of this four-part series. So if you're inter- interested in freeze drying, you can go back there. Uh, cold storage. Karen's always wanted a root cellar, and I'm just telling you, Creek, uh sometime when you visit you'll see we live on the top of a mountain and it's you our our topsoil is two inches at best and there's a lot of be- <laughs> bedrock. So there's no digging that without some serious equipment. But but this year actually I'm looking at the door, I'm in the studio and in our basement there's a corner of the basement. Uh, there's two windows in one of the rooms and so uh, we built we put another uh basically put a wall up in a door this past summer. And so we have two small rooms, one of which stores all of our boxes and shipping materials and stuff like that. And it's got two windows in it. So they've been open, they've been open all winter and it keeps, it keeps things about 40 degrees in there. So that's our cold storage. And Karen does a lot of dehydrating. So um, she's doing, she's doing all of these things just it really again it gets back to you know do what you like like plant what you're going to eat um she has certain things that she likes canned for whatever reasons uh you know soups and things like that and and uh you know tomato stuff and and uh even like elderberry so she can make syrup later in the year and stuff like that and she does mm-hmm. a lot of dehydrating and uh a lot of freeze drying too so Yeah. They all work, and they all have uh, specific purposes. Um, Probably, if I was going to pick the easiest out of all of these, Creek, if somebody just wanted to get started in doing something, you can do a lot with dehydrating. I'd probably say that's the easiest and least expensive one. If you get a really, really, really good dehydrator, and I'm talking... The best uh, that we've found and what we use here, and a lot of people who do like homesteading stuff, use this particular one. You might have a another one to add to this, but it's called the Excalibur. And yeah, that
0: was what I was going to say.
1: Yep, and that's what we use. There's a lot that you can do with dehydrating, and you know, basically, you dehydrate. You can put it in Mylar bags and seal, seal it up for the long term. Most of the time, we just use canning jars here. So. Uh, mm. Anything
0: else on per, per,
1: And you can yeah. you
0: can expect 1 to
1: 3 years, 1 to 3 yep.
0: years out of dehydrated
1: items. Yep. And if you have kids or grandkids, they just they love the dehydrated fruit. Bananas, stuff mm. like that. Yep. Mm-hmm. Good.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: All right. Last last thing. Um just know that the next best thing to doing your own forever food is potentially bartering and, or working. So let me just, let me just say that if there's, you may have, if you're in a, uh, like an urban area, you may have what's called a CSA, which I think we've mentioned before, I don't know, a couple episodes ago, but it stands for community supported agriculture and, um, the way they work is you can pay dollars you can trade your dollars for like a a weekly maybe every other week uh produce that they're producing in the garden and a lot of csas they have opportunities for you to volunteer so if you want to get a little bit closer to your food you don't want to do your own garden or you may not be able to uh do anything but you know sprouting in your sprouting uh seeds in your kitchen um you may want to check into that and volunteer there. Also, farmers are always looking for for some help. So oftentimes you can go to them and say, you know, oftentimes they'll pay you and give you, you know, give you some food to take home to. So, you know, there's lots of opportunities there. And also know that probably one of the most valuable uh, bartering items if things really, really went south, it's not going to take too long until people need food. So this whole series, we've been trying to simplify it and we've kind of gotten into a little bit more advanced stuff the last two podcasts. But probably, not even probably, I'm just going to say better than gold, better than silver, I don't know, maybe better than Bitcoin too, is going to be putting up some long-term food uh, for your own needs, for your own life and health and survival, for those that you care about. And uh, also, if you have the ability to produce food forever or you've put up enough uh, and a disaster happens, you can be kind and help other people out. And it would I think it's going to be, you know, if things go South Creek, I think having food in your cash is, is going to be worth more than gold.
0: I I totally agree with that. And for, for those who are just kind of jumping in on the rabbit hole of survival food, you know, this forever food concept of raised beds and small scale livestock and bees, this is phase three and four and five or phase never for some people, you know, and if, if you don't have, if you're just getting started and you're wanting to, you know, have some security and some peace of mind, just start with the first um, couple of sessions that we had on on survival food storage and get some long term food storage under your belt, just like food that's ready to eat that's in storage for long term and and then just see how you feel from there if you have an interest in taking it farther, then a lot of these things that we've talked about will give you some ideas for doing that. But none of it, of course, is necessary. Uh, it's all optional. And it's just that those next kind of the next steps that you may want to consider um, in, in, the whole, in the whole survival food genre, really. That's really good, Creek. Uh, I'm going to leave people with a couple
1: of books. And then why don't you leave them with a, uh, just a parting thought, okay? So the first yeah. book I've got here is uh, Charles Dowding's. No dig gardening course number one from weeds to vegetable easily and quickly if you want to dig literally dig into raised bed gardening. He actually has some he's he's uh English. He actually has some fantastic videos. Like he's he's just like therapeutic to watch and listen to. But he also has uh kind of like his whole course in a book that you can get on Amazon. I'll put links in the show notes. Uh the whole seed catalog for uh Baker Creek heirloom seeds. I picked, actually just picked this up at, uh, what is that? Uh, Yeah, the local farm store. (laughs) It's a big, thick catalog and it's got like all, like, seeds from all over the world that are heritage seeds. And I mentioned before the backyard beekeeper. And if you want to be like a rabid generalist and you're just interested in homesteading or prepping or small space gardening, there's an old book by Reader's Digest. There may be a a newer version. It's called Back to Basics. There's all
0: kinds of cool stuff in there. Well, here's my parting thought. The average American uses over 80 gallons of water per day. So water's a major issue, and we haven't talked about that yet, but we're going to. Uh, So in the next session here, we're going to transition from food, which we've covered incredible amount of detail about, into water. We're going to move into what do you need for immediate fresh water storage? Uh, we're going to talk about water filters, and then we're going to give you some really solid action steps for establishing a renewable water source so that you have forever water.
1: That's amazing, Creek. Yeah, we put food first because that's what people think about first. It's not necessarily that it's the most immediate need. I personally think that uh, things are, you know, revolving around water and water storage and hygiene are, are much more important so that's awesome we'll get into that next time creek creek my friend
0: how can people find you Creekstuart.com be sure to subscribe to that email list because that's where all the value is and it's free 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 <laughs> it is free yeah i love it i love it all right man appreciate
1: you a lot talk to you next time okay david great looking forward to it All right, my friend, before we head out of here, would you do us a great kindness or two to help the podcast reach more people and grow? First, pay it forward by sharing our family, friendly, and hopefully helpful and encouraging content with a couple of friends or loved ones. Second, go over to our mothership, ultimatesurvivaltips.com and check it out. There's lots of free content, videos, and unique gear like our tiny survival and first aid guides, our design your own survival kit app, my MSK1 knife, plus you can score our free weekly survival EMAG newsletter. And while you're there, Don't forget to click the podcast tab at the top of the page to get the show notes PDF for this podcast with links to the things we discussed today. Then go give us a five-star rating and an honest review wherever you listen to this podcast. That's it. Share the podcast. Go visit UltimateSurvivalTips.com and give us a sweet five-star review. Oh, and producer Ben just reminded me that we want to hear from you. So send us an email at survivalshowpodcast at gmail.com. Let us know what topics you want us to cover, what guests you'd like to hear from, and send us your questions. If we feature your question on the show, we'll give you a shout out during the podcast and dun-dun-dun! I will put your name in the hat for a chance to win an MSK1 knife for Christmas. So send us your questions at survivalshowpodcast at gmail.com. Alrighty, I think that's about it. Thanks for joining me today. We'll see you next time on the Survival Show Podcast. Until then, remember to keep it simple, be positive, and stay sharp.